not too long ago, I was in the lobby of a hotel that I did not belong in with my class and resources. I was on a birthday journey that took a detour with uh, a couple of friends that me and my wife were on, and I overheard a conversation in this lobby um, while this person was on the phone. And this conversation was quite mesmerizing to me. Um, As somebody who uh, studies topics such as mental health, mental wellness, philosophy, uh, the art of control, the art of self-mastery, and all topics having to do with what I now know are all attributed to uh, something that is borderline taboo called human consciousness. I was first exploring these things for personal betterment um, and explored more of the philosophy side of things as Western-style philosophy of uh, how to address the mind wasn't working for me. I started to explore more alternate theories, everything ranging from Eastern philosophy to Eastern religions to uh, African philosophy, African religions, ancient philosophy, ancient religions and myth, and led me into a sector of study that I had always shied away from with uh, conspiracy-style things, really anything that uh, claims to be nonfiction but is so different than everything I've ever experienced. I uh, I had to dismiss it, take it with a huge grain of salt, because they're very, very compelling. Um, but I was looking for a framework to have a more positive life, less anxiety. Um, and my anxieties were wildly out of control until I started to practice, you know, Eastern philosophies of self-care. And when I started to realize the same way that people would react to this knowledge, almost like it was esoteric in nature, but literally just different than anything they had taken the time to be taught or learn themselves out of personal choice, mostly doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it scary because it's different. And what's interesting is, is the longer I listened to ancient myths and conspiracy, I started to realize I could see the difference between the belief and the idea, the ideal and the idea. And the ideas were pretty apparent. Either they were an idea that needed to be enforced or an idea that was just so compelling and so intriguing that in a Western society, we have a rise of meditation and yoga, which is very, very um, counter-conditional, counter-cultural to um, everything that 
we would be led to expect in a linear progression. Why would we revert to something that other cultures have been doing for thousands of years? It didn't make sense. But then I started to realize that I could tell the difference between a good idea and a bad idea based on who was seeking control for, uh, you know, these ideas. If the idea needed some sort of control and enforcement, I saw in the long run it was based heavily on fear tactics and relief in, I can fix this for you. Either like, I'll do the work to fix it. This is the same sort of, you know, stress release tactics that you see NLP being used for sales in both ethical and unethical situations. Doctors use it to give hope to patients that if they just do enough hard work, they can get better. Whereas, you know, some doctors, they'll give you all the hope that this medication will fix your problems and not only does it not fix your problems enough, it gives you a new problem. So it's it's a, almost an ethical paradox when it comes to these things. And I started to notice these things in everything from religion to philosophy to political affiliations to even sports teams and companies. And, of course, the big ideas such as economics and governmental systems and uh, spiritual leadership. Um, but what I found really interesting is this same principle that helped me listen to <laughs> some topics that had some pretty wild beliefs from what I have experienced and what I am able to experience. But I had to realize to them, the beliefs that I had been raised on made them react with the same dismissal of craziness as I did for them. And that helped me have compassion long enough to listen, hear the context, and realize that they are working on a lot of the same logic and reasoning we are. It's just they know different things. And then I started to bridge the gap because I wasn't choosing to believe in them. I started to bridge the gap and realize they had some pretty sound uh, methods for what they're doing, stuff that I can't verify myself. Maybe a lot of people can't verify themselves the same way. People who have hoped that their favorite sports team is going to win it this year. They carry on that hope to the next year if they don't win. And other people will call them crazy if that goes on too long. But they're seeking for a validation that may never come. I see every belief system does this, whether it's the ideals of capitalism, the ideals of socialism, the ideals of a religious sect, the the ideals of a political movement, the ideals of what is most right, the ideals of what is most wrong, the ideals of obviously the paradoxes of duality. And then I heard on the phone, in a lobby, somebody talking about that they can't believe that people want to believe in duality or paradox completely. And this struck my core that I had never heard anyone propose this question in my mind. And it went on to them talking about that they had no idea that this is how other people lived. 
And I was so confused as this very well-dressed man that on, uh, essentially it looked like vacation, but it was not the kind of clothes I would vacation in somewhere like almost 1700 style and very modern, uh, modernized to be relevant today. Like you'd see it on a catwalk in Milan, but it was like somewhere between formal, professional, and casual. A man out of time, needless to say, on uh, just a normal iPhone. And what was crazy to me is he was talking as if he knew something and was surprised to figure out how the rest of us lived almost like you know, an alien. And then I had the crazy idea. I need to talk to him after he gets off the phone. This was, you know, ringing in my head. This is, you can't do that. That's rude. You don't know him. You can't ask him questions about his life. That's, you know, he's he's not going to want to tell you about his life. You don't know him. Don't do it. That's crazy. You're going to get in trouble or something. But once he hung up, I went up to this man. Forgetting to introduce myself, I asked him about the difference between paradox and duality that he was talking about on the phone. And I apologized for eavesdropping. And I asked how... He learned about this, and he introduced himself, and for the sake of anonymity, as I do not have his permission to share his identity, we will call him Phil Decent. And he was telling me that he came from a very, very powerful family, and they were not powerful in the way most people would think, that he grew up with all the pomps and frills and privileges of wealth, but his family had almost nothing to their name. And his family was not a single name. It was not a single bloodline or nationality. It was an extended family, to say the least, of people of all different races and uh, religious backgrounds and nationalities and histories. Some of them had married into the family. Some of them were direct bloodlines that went back hundreds of years or even further. And he said that it is not important who they are, but the ideas that he came from. And he says this is relevant to everything he was talking about. He said that his family had created something a long time ago. And it was an idea that um, they had essentially patented for power. And this idea was centralized organization. And this was very, very compelling for me as somebody who had found 
cryptocurrency, understood the buzzword of decentralized, also knew the difference between decentralized software and cryptographic algorithms that were using a currency protocol based on decentralized software that has essentially been the heart of the open source technology scene since, I don't know, 50s, 60s, roughly, maybe before that. Um, And he was telling me about his family created the first contract for centralized organization. And this was not a contract written on paper or in stone, but in the minds of people. It relied heavily on contracts written in stone and on paper. And he told me that they actually, that was the real invention, was the contracts to enforce their contract of mind. This centralized thinking. And I asked him where he was from and tell me more about his life. Where where did he come from? And he said that he was born in a, a country home and grew up moving all over the place. His family didn't have anywhere, but they had anywhere they wanted to use. They had networks of assets that they didn't really own but they had power and control over that his family was able to deal in currencies that gave power to the currencies that we use. And he lived a complete life of dualism until the early 2000s when he was in his early 20s and joined a social network. And he explained to me that his family, not unlike other families he's met here, uh, were very anti him using social media. But they were very anti this in the very beginning. In the very, very beginning. He said this was um, almost like they weren't afraid of it, but they were ashamed of it. They said that it was not for people of their class or culture, that it was something that other people used. And there were no overt labels applied to these other people, just that they were different than them. And he explained to me that he lived in pretty much a bubble until he was done with university. And his university came to him, essentially. He would go to any university he needed. He had, you know, only need make a phone call, and he could attend any lecture course, any any study, get any mentor or tutor, anywhere he went, anywhere he wanted to go. And he said that he and his family lived a very, very decentralized life. They had the con- continuity granted by access that they were accustomed to. But essentially, they never 
lived in the same place for more than a few weeks to a few months. He never studied something very long. He said that he did not learn things for years at a time. He would go right to the top, learn the principle, and start applying it because he had the safety net to fail. And that's what his family lived by. And they had networks of influence that didn't rely on reputation of celebrity, reputation of money, that didn't require exchanging by giving something first. It was always favors, almost almost like he described the explanation of privilege that is very, very common in this area now that he is away from home. But he said that the idea of privilege is void of the idea of trust. That trust grants us privileges just as being an honest person, being a loving person, being a kind person, or being a mean person, being an angry person, being a beautiful person, being a ugly person. All of these things are existing on dualistic planes of privilege. And he explained to me that um, he has been trying to bridge the gap for about a year. And he had been exploring the internet, as we all do, looking for answers outside of his reality. And he was looking for answers of us. He had intense fear of talking to anyone outside of his class. He believed that it was inevitably dangerous, that at first they would seem nice, but they didn't understand him and he should avoid them until he disobeyed his parents and decided to explore the internet. And I will never forget the same feelings of shock and disbelief and disgust, and this is absolutely wrong, that he was talking about, learning about celebrities and the people that are fans of them and the titans of industry and all of these billions of people living a different life than him, talking about things that they called him crazy for communicating about them with. And he was starting to question his own reality. Maybe maybe everything he was living was a lie, but no. He said his family loved him. They were just trying to protect him. He couldn't believe in anything that could prove them wrong. How disrespectful for, would that be? How rude. And he was saying the same things I had been, but on the other side of the coin. And he explained to me that his family of many names, many marriages, many lineages, many contracts, 
have been at the helm of every new contract, every new centralized organization from the beginning of time, and that they were constantly at war with people who hadn't monopolized on centralized control like they did. And they would monopolize on this by giving people much more than they could ever accomplish on their own merits because they had capital. Because they didn't have world domination. They were always in constant competition since the beginning of time. But they had their first success and that was enough to entice almost anyone into centralized ideals. But they continued to live in a decentralized manner that their family had enjoyed just like everyone else before them. After this, I obviously rejected it with extreme skepticism. I thought he was crazy. He dressed like no one I knew. He talked in a way that was proper, um, that wasn't really proper United Kingdom English or proper American English. It was just very concise, very, very concise. And I knew practicing mental illness that Concise language is essentially one of the pinnacles of stable-minded communication. So this was the only thing I held on to to not dismiss him completely. Realizing that just because I didn't believe what he was saying doesn't mean that he doesn't know what he's saying. So I, I asked him to show me more of what he knows that I have a hard time talking about these things and that I have a hard time visualizing these things. He said he understood. He said that he got over anxiety uh, when he left home and uh, his mind was able to grasp onto ideas much larger than what he had been conditioned to. And he hesitantly used... Uh, the word brainwash, but because it came from a place of love and security and compassion and um, he uh, he then offered to uh, come with me, and that was very very weird for me, but uh, I explored this over, this option over with my wife and um, my friends on this trip with me and opened up to them about the truth of what was going on and who who this person was and shared with them what they proposed and they were more than happy to have them come along. It was my birthday. The more the merrier. If I found somebody else to join, they are one of us. And I was very, very surprised and taken aback. And um, afterwards, I 
went back to this man who was still in the lobby the next morning, realizing I didn't have the forethought to plan anything, but it's almost like he had plans regardless. And he was checking out and caught him right at the end and told him he was more than welcome to come along. And he came along with us and we went on our way to Mexico and, um, he, uh, asked that we didn't get him in any of the photos, which was not quite unusual for me growing up with, uh, obesity, mostly in my adult life. Um, there were many times when I would play the same card. So I didn't think twice of it. Maybe, maybe thinking that his, uh, his family would not be approving if he knew where he was and in Mexico with us. Um, so I respected that. And the things he was able to show us and learn. We went on journeys within that short amount of time that we were officially in Mexico, but unofficially went places that were uh, very unexpected. We went on places that I was constantly asking, do we, like... I don't have a passport card. I I don't have a passport. I just have a passport card. I don't think I'm allowed to fly anywhere. All of these things. It's realizing I was reacting with fear. And he was constantly reassuring us. And we went on, you know, journeys that I don't know how or if they were paid for with people that knew him all, all along the way. And in this journey that was hidden at the end of, or sorry, right at the beginning of this Mexico trip. It was really, really interesting because it was all we could talk about through the Mexico trip was this wild, uh, I think it was 24 to 48 hours of journeying to many of which I did not stop long enough to figure out where we went. And there were places so foreign to me that I had my eyes open and conversations and climates and places and Intense situations and relaxing situations that it was a roller coaster of distraction and enlightenment. And it was quite fascinating because it, um, it left me knowing that this man's story needs to be told. And since I don't have direct permission to share his story, because at the time I didn't have the forethought... to ask him permission for this and I didn't think to ask if he had any other means of communication than the phone number he gave us and that phone number is now gone I mean it's 
has not magically disappeared, but it, it no longer reaches him. And I should have assumed that he was, you know, using burners, maybe an app or something on his phone. And it's... I, I really wish I had asked for other means of communication. His name doesn't exist when I search it to the point where it makes me even question if that's his real name which is why I, I label him Phil Decent um, the man who taught me decentralized philosophy and he explained to me that this ancient philosophy very very ancient was how humanity coexisted before centralized organization of humans. And it was harmonic in nature. They understood the balance of duality and paradox and wouldn't let themselves go too far to one side, too far to the other, lest you get lost in the pseudo-logic and reasoning of one or the other. Too much paradox is a bad thing. He said just as much too much duality is a bad thing. And this was something I had never heard before. It was, I didn't see any source for this. But what's interesting is I saw a lot of mentions in the minds of many throughout time talking about this but nobody in such completion as as phil and it was just quite fascinating um he explained to me that they had monopolized centralized control as i mentioned previously and they were the main authority simply because people believe they were the main authority simply because they were not better than anyone but they survived longer and that survival essentially became rebranded into success. And that success was the driving force of any civilization that lasted more than a couple of generations, he said. Um, but was also in direct conflict with this ancient decentralized philosophy that didn't agree with their means to industrialize and centralize power in the way they did by sitting at the top with control, either directly, but he said his family actually preferred indirect control. They didn't like to deal in the currencies of politics or money or celebrity. Instead, they liked to have the influence and the connections and the networks in places unimaginable that all of these people of power sought. And they dealt specifically in favors, not unlike the way children exchange value with favors and gifts. He said that a 
duality-minded human will see this as either inherently good or inherently bad. But the paradox of good and bad is all it takes is time for the good to become bad and the bad to become good. He said that his family carried on this truth in stories. It was not written in any one place. And they carried on the tradition of storytelling the same way ancient decentralized societies carried on important knowledge. So he said that first it was the philosophers and then it was the scholars and then it was the teachers and mentors and then it was the religious organizations because they realized that teachers, mentors, philosophers, those were still too decentralized in nature. And they had to figure out a way to keep the teachers from understanding too much and doing what he said Marcus Aurelius did and just accidentally get into a position of power that had great ability to undermine a centralized system of control with or without power anymore. It's giving knowledge that his family called esoteric and that their power came from not having answers, if that makes any sense. People wonder how centralized organizations work. They work because we believe them. They work because we believe that they're going to work. And the only thing that can bring them down is if we stop believing in them. We think that they have some magic bullet or magic wand or secret recipe or secret book somewhere. But no, in in fact, they are trying to keep us from the secret books or the secret wands or the, you know, the taboo texts or of these ideas that came from trying to find harmony between intelligence and wisdom, and they capitalized on intelligence and demonized wisdom, quite literally, he said. He said that he's heard stories of his family um, rebranding pretty much everything, given enough time. At one time, it was unethical for a teacher to be paid, and now it's a question of ethics of how much to pay them. He talked about these almost lightheartedly, like it was hard for him to believe that he was living in a paradoxical reality and without any connection to his family, which is interesting because he still has their power, but he is hiding from them in a way that is somewhere between criminal and hobo. I I find the more modern term now is a digital nomad, where they have found a way where it is not necessarily illegal or wrong or criminal, but they also have to realize that depending where they are, What is tolerable or good in one place could be bad or even illegal or criminal in another. So it's navigating 
in a way where it's he he banks on reputation of a history of survival or success and he knows a certain combination of names to mention or you know whether they be people or places or things that just hit a protocol that is in all of these places that his family likes to stay and he gets to stay there almost secretly not quite secret it's it's almost like how I hear some religions talk about sacred. It's you can talk about it, but p- people probably aren't going to understand it enough to appreciate it. So, um, which is why he would be talking about these things on the phone and in the lobby, and realizing that he didn't care if anyone thought he was crazy. But when I asked him for more, he was more than willing. To give me more. His generosity was astounding. He had a completely different relationship with things of privilege or money or access than I've ever I've ever come into before. It seemed like Everything I wanted but feared at the other end, he had figured out a way to navigate. And it was something that, whether or not you're on either side of what we consider success or failure, we're navigating what he somehow has an ancient secret code that he said is still lived by in native cultures that have not integrated with the rest of humanity and that interestingly enough the secrets don't lie in them the secrets lie where our feelings are telling us to be too afraid to listen to and this this stood out to me this stood out to me like a just like a shock to the system it made so much sense with my history in marketing i know that you know, if you want to pull somebody's attention towards something, tell them what to look at. If you want to guarantee that people will look at something, tell them what not to look at. If you want people to ignore something, pretend like it doesn't exist. And when you acknowledge it, dismiss it, dismiss it as ridiculous, crazy, delusional. And realizing that everything he was talking about was covering all the nuances that I was trying to uncover in the mental health industries and the medical industries and the marketing industries and, you know, government and politicking and liberty and freedom. But this was essentially a framework for the difference between good ideas and bad ideas in a way so simple, it was terrifying. And the idea was control always funnels all the way up to his family and does not stop at money or politics or celebrity, which he said is the hierarchy of power in this world. 
all power from control finds a way to fill up these control banks of power that give his family the connections that they need by giving people what they want who have been conditioned to not want what they need and they're living at the top the same way he said that the criminals and the hobos and the crazy people and the homeless live at the bottom And he said the only way for those people that are somewhere in between to realize that the people at the very top and the people at the very bottom are living the same way is to stop believing that the people at the top have all the answers the same way that they don't believe that the people at the bottom have all the answers. He said that many in his family have tried to undermine this through time. Very powerful names, such as Marcus Aurelius, such as many great religious visionaries, many that I'm uncomfortable naming by names, but there have been at least one on every continent that can be traced to every major religion in the world and that every centralized religion in the world puts between us and the answers with different terminology to label the answers as bad, evil, criminal, illegal, sketchy, taboo, dark it's brilliant brand marketing that is so heuristical in nature that you almost think that you know what Daniel Kahneman and Amos Traversky discovered with heuristics wasn't that big of a discovery hearing how his family has lived for thousands of years And that they never cared about who was in power, who was the king, who was a president, who was the president of a public organization, who was the president of a private organization. That they were all playing at a different level. If they had found a way to bank in currency, celebrity, or belief. And this was... This was one that really poked holes to the point where uh, these were no longer finger holes. These were enormous boulder holes. It felt like I had been trying to peer through a keyhole my entire life. And then the door opened, smacked me in the head. And I had a choice to either complain about the pain or realize that now I could see through the doorway and if I choose to, walk through it. He explained to me that very few people 
or shared enough information to understand the gravity of what they are being offered, which is why he doesn't ask for anything to give more knowledge. He is fed up with this pseudo-ethics that his family uses to live differently than pretty much everyone else other than who they have demonized in our minds. And the constant conflict between how we live and how the people who we label as below us live keeps us from seeing that inherent truth of what the people at the bottom are doing works better than what we're told is more right. And this conflicts with every dualist ideal that there is good and bad. When he said that it is not about good or bad, it's realizing the relationship between good, bad, and time. Realizing the relationship between righteous, evil, and time. Realizing the relationship between capitalism, communal living, and time. Realizing the relationship between slavery, prisoners with jobs, and time. Realizing the difference between and the relationship of because there is no difference between any of these things other than time. The differences between indentured servitude or indentured slavery in a lifestyle that front loads on debt to have privileges up front only are apparent if you understand the context of time. This was mind-blowing to me. Utterly mind-blowing. It, it made me realize that we are we're almost all like children, but not not like children that can't help out with ever it's almost like we're in an extended state of adolescence. I think I've heard that term before. In an extended state of adolescence where we have childlike beliefs that make us bigger and argue like children arguing about, you know, whether or not it's it's more right to have ice cream or cookies for dinner every night. In reality, the ridiculous of it all is we're desperately trying to find the person that tells us that it's okay to have cookies for dinner every night or the person who says it's okay to have ice cream for dinner every night and realizing we're drawn to people who give us what we want but is the opposite of what we need because our wants and needs aren't harmonized. And the craziest part of this conversation was he said that you have to let go of all of your wants in order to realign them with your needs. And my first response was, he can't live a life without wands. What will you do without, you know, if you don't have wands, how can you ever set goals? And he's like, you're, you're looking at this without enough context. And this was when I started to 
understand the import of parables. And he was explaining to me that if you have a child that is told not to touch the stove because it is hot, if that belief is left uneducated, that child could grow up to say, I will never touch a stove because it's hot. And they will ridicule other people for the dangerous lifestyle of touching stoves, of putting their food on a stove or in a stove and in the oven. You do not touch these things. They are hot. They are taboo. They are bad. They are evil. And then they will argue with somebody who says, no, no, all hot is illegal, is evil, is illegal, is wrong, is unethical. You're such a hypocrite for using fire or, you know, central heating in your home. How dare you? And the adolescent state of mind on the other side is, other side is saying, you're crazy. <laughs> your moral relativism is so delusional. It's so crazy. It's, you need to get back into reality. But realizing that we don't do this for stoves. Because eventually, we either learn the hard way by touching the stove and learning that it is hot to the touch and it is no longer a belief. And that creates a knowledge that it is hot. Or we believe that the stove is hot until we learn to cook. And we see, you know, food fall off the pan and burn up in the flame. And we understand that that is made up of the same carbon that we are made up of. And we then understand the lesson, even without direct experience, but indirect experience, learning it secondhand in a way that we could not process completely with third-hand explanation of a story, of a belief. And at this point, they have learned the same lesson as the child who touched the stove and realized that it's, it's hot and it can hurt them. And that's why they don't touch it, because it can hurt them. But realizing that lesson isn't enough until we ask why. And the one that understands the positive value of the stove will not jump to the same conclusion as the child who just believes that it's hot and it can hurt them. And that pushes them down the path of, you know, I, I don't ever go near a stove because they never had anyone guide them through the process to learn that it has any good attributes. And even when it is explained to them, they're not going to believe somebody who is crazy enough to do something as dangerous as use a stove. How ridiculous. This fear is what keeps these two children paralyzed and enslaved in their mind until they have more and more knowledge. 
It's realizing that Plato's allegory of the cave and the matrix are the same story, just different mediums. One is a traditional, almost fable-type story and with ingredients available at that time. And the matrix is the same way. And saying that, you know, we're all in a simulation... Because of Plato's allegory of the cave at that time, people would have said, yeah, but we're not all in a cave. We're like, we, this is not a cave. You can tell this is not a cave. You're an idiot, Plato. Just as people would say about the Matrix, you really think we're all in a simulation on a computer? Like You think somebody could program this? You're an idiot. It's the same excuse of dismissal. Ridiculous dismissal. Realizing that the difference between history and myth is whether or not we choose to believe it. Probably the part that I have the hardest time believing, but realizing that belief is not necessary to knowing these things and that the difference between knowing and believing for me used to be absolute. But now that I understand that reason is paradoxical in nature, in logic is just the construct of reason in a dualistic society, that there are Logical fallacies in paradoxical reality as much as there are logical fallacies in dualistic reality. But in a dualistic reality, we still see the value of things such as love and hope and empathy and the dualistic counterparts of those things such as you know, lust and sympathy are like cheap knockoffs of the true paradoxical versions that make themselves apparently true not through knowing, but through experience. And that experience isn't always the same thing as knowing absolutely. And that belief in itself is paradoxical. Just as a scientist will believe in a theory until evidence otherwise, but delusion is believing in a theory despite evidence otherwise. And even delusion is paradoxical in nature. Realizing that the difference between delusion and vision is whether or not it can come to pass in a time frame that we can appreciate. And this is, this is quite interesting. This is why certain people through time who have promoted decentralized ideas 
have almost always died as a martyr. Marcus Aurelius, Jesus Christ, Martin Luther King Jr. But what's really, really interesting to me is that when you try and force anything, it ends up breaking you. And oftentimes what happens is being the first, the trailblazer, has the same effect as trying to force something. When it itself is not forcing anything that isn't just inherently true, and they are not enforcing what they believe they are presenting something that is a shock to the system for centralized control, and the force that breaks them comes from the centralized control side. This is why the centralized spiritual control that played right into the centralized political control of the political and governmental and military control of Jesus Christ's time, both of them were threatened by this decentralized philosophy. It was known as different names at that time. And in fact, the names that was known at at that time are different from the names we use now. And going back through history made me realize that the names that we use now were picked after the teachings of Jesus Christ were centralized by the state that had lost a control structure that was being underthrow by this movement of people looking to have personal spiritual knowledge of their personal truth. And many, many of uh, the people that were needed to organize uh, a spiritual beacon for those looking for spiritual truth um, we're being drawn to this decentralized organization of hope and love and knowledge to know oneself. And then after it was centralized, we had, you know, canonical definitions of Jesus Christ and his teachings, which was very, very interesting because the truth survived through that. But understanding the import of narrative or story to centralized control that was being torn asunder at that time. He told me that these states people needed a religious centralized control to report to them in order to keep people obedient when they would have an existential crisis of state and they called it the, the state of mind, the mind state, the mind at one with the state. When they were having this existential crisis, they wanted to exit the state. 
for the sake of their spirit, to bring meaning into their life, they would be drawn to the spiritual centralized organization of that time too. That worked very, very closely with the state. They they claimed it as self-preservation, which is true. It is, It was self-preservation, realizing that anyone is going to submit to control when might makes right. So what's interesting is this is the same problem that Marcus Aurelius ran into, introducing Stoicism into the world. But the difference between then and Jesus Christ is they didn't have a centralized organization for Stoicism. But this is the same philosophy that Marcus Aurelius didn't invent. I was told that this goes back way back to tribal living. And Jesus Christ taught it and then they centralized it and they created a same call to action to get people to do things a little bit easier than being nomadic and looking for answers at anyone who can tell a story of Jesus Christ or finding texts that were left over of other people who knew him all around the world. So they found a way to centralize it, make it really easy and offered, you know, free bread and wine to anyone who came to listen, which wasn't, you know, the way that other people were talking about doing it, but it was the new, new thing. And that was quite amazing when he explained to me that his family was very responsible for rebranding the teachings of Jesus Christ, collecting the teachings, canonizing them, and centralizing them to make them very, very easy to read, but hard to understand. They were contradictory in nature. They were, you know, you still had to seek out a middleman for answers. It was confusing to say the least. It did not point you inward. If you read that and thought that these were the same exact answers that Jesus Christ taught, you you start to think that, oh, he was way more mystical than uh, I believed. And uh, it was very, very easy for them to create a middleman structure between you and your salvation. What's interesting is, is at that point, it was, you know, one man who was the representative of Christ on this earth. It was the Pope. But that became unpopular over time. And somebody else dissented. And this this man was Martin Luther. And he sparked an idea that got him killed. And uh, it got to the point where he was even saying, do not form a church around me, which is interesting because either either that's, you know, very, very representative of what Jesus Christ wants or it's not. And every single Christian revolution ever since... Uh, Martin Luther has not said that about 
starting a church around these, you know, seeking of personal spiritual truth. He suggested less centralized control. And then after he died, Lutheranism was centralized for anyone who was interested in a centralized dissent against Catholicism. And the same way that competing governments and military powers were easier to manage than a single giant one that conquers everything, they realized the value of distribution. They could do less for more. This is the same thing that... uh, John D. Rockefeller ran into, he did not want to give up control of Standard Oil. And when he was forced to, in the name of good, Standard Oil was broken up into over 30 different companies. That he and his innovative mind, needless to say, innovative if not corrupted by this lust for control that comes from thinking that control can be a good thing. I learned, um, eventually led him to innovate and turn a bad situation into a good one. And he had ownership rights in all of the new companies as he was instructed to help set them up. And he made more money, not in control, than he ever did in control of the overt oil monopoly. But this covert oil monopoly where... Pretty much the biggest voices in all of them at that time were the Rockefellers or their representatives made him more money retired than he ever did working as, you know, an industrial titan. (laughs) And he said that this, uh, this discovery is what brought, you know, brought many people throughout time into the fold of his family. And without elaborating on whether or not the Rockefellers are a part of this family, I will just say that the temptation of the benefits of control, even partial control, even a percentage of control, lead to the acceptance that this idea that centralized control is a good thing, it leads it to be almost cult-like in nature where there is a default reaction that anything other than centralized control is anarchy. When anarchy is literally what tribes lived before centralized civilization, it's What we turn to every single time a tyrant gets too high on control. Anarchy is something we use as a fix because there has been no infrastructure to turn it into a long-term solution. But anarchy has gone through many names. I mean, anarchy was, you know, tribal living and... And anarchy was, you know, nomadic 
Judaic culture, and then it was nomadic Christian culture. It was, you know, now what digital nomads do is almost literally advanced anarchy. There, There is organization. There is cooperation. There is capitalization. There is socialization. It's realizing that they just don't choose one ideal. They benefit from both the social construct and the capitalistic construct, but they do not fall victim to the absolutism of tolerating you know, mass control, whether that mass control is a very, very powerful political leader or a very, very powerful industrial titan. And this was fascinating to me because I learned that both of these are pawns. The richest of the rich, the most famous of the famous, the most powerful of the political, they're all pawns. But not like we think. Even even the people that have been mislabeled as Illuminati or globalists are are doing the exact opposite of what I learned many people believe that they're doing. It is not some sort of divinely orchestrated system of evil control. It's order through chaos. It's it's literal anarchy at the top. Realizing that they compete against each other all the time the same way <laughs> this man that I met <laughs> is competing with his family in the same way our families you know, fight. <laughs> and it was it was world-shattering for me because I realized that there's this delusion of order at the top which makes us believe that even people at the top are going to have some sort of engineered system of absolute success when it's actually quite the contrary. They just don't get bogged down by failure enough to believe that they're a failure. They don't get bogged down by being wrong enough to feel bad about it, enough to hesitate to learn how to be right from the lesson in being wrong. And this is instinctual. They have a completely different relationship with feelings and beliefs where they don't believe in anything just on word or testimony alone. Um, It needs to present self-evident truths and they are not afraid of uh, questioning those, but they still fall to the same, you know, human dilemmas of duality and paradox. I realize that This man has a community, even at his level. And they are almost the same size as the community that subscribes to control. But they're living in the same sort of chaos and anarchy as the ones guiding the control systems. And they are constantly undermining it and underthrowing it peacefully. In the same nature. 
He was talking to somebody on the phone who had been through what he went through at the beginning of the third industrial revolution of the the digital age in, in the 80s. And this was somebody who was not necessarily mentoring him, but guiding him, letting him know that he wasn't crazy. He was mentoring him in a way where it was less about control and return on investment and compassion and understanding and lifting up. It was a very, very interesting to realize that there's a whole side to humanity that seems a lot more human and a lot less scary than anything else I've ever learned. And what's interesting is, is it's not absolutely true. Realizing I'm not from this reality. So it's, I, I can't, I can't describe any more than what I've been told. And it's not limited to the idea that this is it. Like this discredits every other theory of what's beyond this top level of human control. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a misnomer of, of new ideas is this, this is just an idea. It's not an ideal. It is not absolute that there, there are other options beyond this, but this just goes up to the top of human control. I'm not talking about gods or aliens or any of those things. Like that would be at a different level of control. And I'm not even going to suggest, you know, that the people who believe in those things, that there might not be gods or aliens or angels in this mix of people that I just don't know. I I just don't know. I only know what I know and I can't know what I don't know. But I know that these principles are self-evident in every single way that ethics has been evolving since the Third Industrial Revolution. And most people think that ethics are absolute. This is a, this is a misnomer as well, that this is completely misguided. Realizing that the arguments that were had at the fall of slavery in America were, you know, you, we can't give up this control. They won't be able to take care of themselves. They're, they're helpless. They can't, they can't live a life like us. They can't live among us. They're, and, and that belief was being questioned, but not so much that when they were eventually released, most people that were even for the release, because they saw the ethical dilemma of slavery, but they weren't ready to believe that they were equal. They believed that they didn't deserve to be enslaved. The same way, you know, at one point in time, we trained dogs to fight the prey we were hunting. <laughs> and now that we don't need to hunt, people have trained dogs to fight each other. And it begs the question, is it unethical for a dog to fight? Or is it about context? And what's interesting is begging the question is a logical fallacy in dualistic reality. 
But in paradoxical reality, once you introduce time and context into the equation, it's a whole different story. It's realizing it's only a series of stories to represent the ethics of the age. And the ethics of the ages of even just the United States of America. The United States of America with a lowercase u. This is very important. So the United States of America was an idea for an experiment that had been advanced upon that at one time failed so horribly that people went back to monarchies. But they decided to advance upon it. Imagine how difficult it would be to say, we can try again and we can do better if it wasn't the British Empire that was still in power. Imagine how difficult it would be if it was still the Roman Empire that was in power. And I start to realize that it was an idea, an experiment. They never expected it to be perfect or absolute. But they also never expected to have, you know, the Industrial Revolution that happened in America. Mass production of goods and products. So much different than the Industrial Revolution that happened that, you know, gave us the printing press and sparked the idea of what if we have more machines as tools that can you know, do the work of many people without complaining, without, you know, paying them any more than the upfront investment to have the machine. This is very, very interesting because this was the idea that spread in the Industrial Revolution of America. The first Industrial Revolution led to the printing press, which led to the American idea. The second Industrial Revolution led to the mass production machine race and also led to the mass production of mass-producing machines known as digital machines, digital computers. So it's, it's interesting how every industrial revolution has created a problem, and a solution. But the solution comes at the height of the problem. And at the height of the American Industrial Revolution popped out computers, which almost started to tear apart the infrastructure of the first American Industrial Revolution. And... They stabilized it with the machines. They centralized the production of the machines and got enough people to know how to use these machines to the point where they created a, a pretty much pseudo-industrial revolution extension for America where 
the first industrial revolution, American industrial revolution titans were able to carry on power by using uh, these computers to offset the costs of things such as couriers and accountants and make them more powerful and less expensive to them. And that, that was very, very interesting. And then this created problems all in itself. Um, but also it created byproducts such as mass communication, uh, really, really convenient transportation and the internet. Well, the first internet, I mean, now we, we know we have several internets. I mean, every social network is an internet. Every messaging app is an internet. Um, every forum is an internet. We have internets layered inside of internets, layered inside of internets. And we even have uh, several protocols for internets right now, such as the uh, HTTP backbone, Tor, uh, I2P, um, and new budding ones in the realm of decentralization, such as uh, GUN. GUN is an interesting name for a protocol, but considering that it is the most powerful invention for... uh, Digital self-defense. It's a very suiting name because it's a it's a weapon for the wise. It's an elegant weapon to bring us back to a more civilized time. And this is probably one of the most fascinating things that Phil Decent didn't tell me about the things I know. He just gave me a framework to see more in the knowledge that I heard he knew. He helped me, as <laughs> Morpheus says from The Matrix, to quote that movie, he, he helped me open my mind. And there were things that I could not be explained. And I had to see to understand and that took a step of faith a real step of faith because I had no way of knowing whether or not I was bringing along you know a delusional crazy person that was going to kill us all in Mexico but then I realized you know you can't judge a book by its cover but in a society Where not only do we not judge a book by its cover, (laughs) we don't even care about the cover. Like The cover is so worthless to us that we need to have a testimonial to motivate us to even consider the title on the cover to start reading. That's the world we live in now. It's no longer don't judge a book by its cover, it's... I just really want you to read a book. And since you don't read, I have to compel you more than your disinterest in consuming long-form thought, which was me up until a couple of years ago. I guarantee you 
that for most of my adult life, I told people I did not like reading. This sounds so ridiculous to me now, but I realized I was not alone in this. And that, you know, reading became really, really popular after the printing press. So did writing. Anybody who could read or write was an authority. Now, I mean, with the rise of the digital printing press with the internet, analog reading and writing is just boring and anyone can do it to the point where it doesn't really bode any authority but realizing that you know economies use many different currencies and when it comes to the economy of information and knowledge the currency is attention and the authority that used to once be in the medium such as the pages or the books or the publications, is now a new type of authority known as celebrity, which we have a really pretty much the same sort of relationship that people had with people who could read and write at the beginning of the printing press. It became very, very powerful to know how to deal in this currency of knowing how to read or write, just as people who know how to get celebrity are these new authorities. And that's why there seems to be a person of celebrity at the head of every major power structure. And it seems to be a war between old celebrities and new celebrities. You have engineers trying to become celebrities when traditionally creatives make the best celebrities so you need more and more engineers with imagination to become better and better self-marketers which is what celebrities are and the people who have been you know to quote a way to quote Gary Vee in a way that makes me <laughs> Mildly uncomfortable to say it is you have old celebrities who really know how to crush it. But the people who are crushing it are the engineers who aren't accepting that they're just engineers. They're learning how to be imaginative outside of engineering. They're learning how to be imaginative in communication where you have forerunners like Jeff Bezos who isn't as elaborate and <laughs> fun to listen to as, you know, someone like Elon Musk. Elon Musk is the creative nerd. It's probably why he leaves a lot more on the table than uh, Jeff Bezos, which uh, is not to be dismissed as irresponsible. Gary Vee has built an empire out of leaving things on the table. Just as much as Jeff Bezos has made an empire of giving people tools to start taking what's on the table. I mean, he's open source access to Publishing, he's open source access to retailing, he's open source access to 
merchandising. I mean, that's, it's not to be scoffed at for its own humanitarian rights. It's, it's like venture philanthropy, what each of them are doing, but everyone seems to be understanding more and more the value of celebrity. This is why Elon Musk is trading more in that currency than Jeff Bezos. That's why there's a celebrity in the White House. There's a celebrity at the head of almost every media organization. There's a celebrity <laughs> there's a celebrity in the crown now. And yet we still look at celebrity as this weird anomaly that is random. It's not random. It's realizing the people who master celebrity understand the value of engineering and creativity. They set up a funnel and do whatever they can to drum up creative attention. And that funnel makes sure to monetize that attention, which is not always about currency monetization. Sometimes it's just taking that attention and figuring out how to reinvest it into more attention. You can either invest it into currency, like money, or you can invest it into getting more attention. People who understand these infrastructures have a harmony between being an engineer and being a creative and it's not to say that this is an inherent, that engineers aren't creators. Jeff Bezos is an amazing creator who knows how to identify people who are innovating and how to plug that into the bigger picture. This is way more open source than what Steve Jobs did, but essentially the same principle harmony between engineering and creativity a harmony a harmony between open source and centralization where profit and impact are in harmony as well there is a big reason why even Jeff Bezos gets labeled a retail monopoly when he is the biggest player in destroying the retail conglomerate, period. He is not a retail monopoly. Really look into the Amazon FBA program. Look into it and ask yourself, is this somebody who wanted a monopoly? Or is this somebody who wanted to create a systematic tool for anyone to take most of the risk, all of the risk that has to do with debt, out of becoming a retailer. That's it. He's fighting the debt economy. He's fighting consumerism. Just as Elon Musk is fighting the oil industry. And he's helping the planet in a way that's really cool. That we desperately want. This is a great harmony of creativity and engineering. From what they're building. When it comes to celebrity... I have to admit, with the amount of respect I have for Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk is crushing it. He is crushing it when it comes to understanding how to engineer celebrity. Oh, man. That's it.
he gets it. But then again, people like Prince EA and many, many other influencer celebrities understand how to engineer these celebrity funnels. The idea here is that anyone who knows how to engineer a celebrity funnel, join me in open sourcing this recipe. Open source the idea that being a celebrity is not wrong. Help others, like Gary V, to show them that being a celebrity is not wrong. And it's not as hard as most people want to believe it is. Because if we're all able to manufacture our own celebrity, that's going to bring harmony between the immense control and responsibility that comes from celebrity and a digital age where everyone has more access than ever to 15 seconds of fame. And all it takes is, you know, about a thousand fans to live a lifestyle that is several times better than most people believe they have to settle for because that's their place in the world. Let us open source celebrity to bring harmony to this world, to bring power to the powerless, and to equalize the power of the powerful celebrities. This is for the people, by the people, in a decentralized future that has a harmonious relationship with centralized organization. Let's bring balance.